Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Hi, I'm Magdalena Morsi and I curate the cultural program at Second Home. In this episode, we had the Academy Award-winning director, Kevin McDonald. He is in conversation with the ACLU senior staff attorney, Mohamed Tajsar. They are discussing Kevin's new film, The Mauritanian. It's based on the New York Times best-selling memoir, Guantanamo Diary. Enjoy. Uh, Maria and hello, welcome everyone. Um, again, my name is Mohammed Tajsar. I'm a lawyer and attorney based uh, in Southern California in Los Angeles, and I work at the American Civil Liberties Union, a uh, legal nonprofit dedicated to up, uh, holding the rule of law and the Constitution here in the United States. Um, and much of our work concerns some of the questions that Kevin's film, The Mauritanian, um, uh, sort of uh, documents for us. And so I'm really delighted to actually be in conversation with Kevin. And talk about this film and um, and some of the lessons I think um, uh, that perhaps he can share with us about the making and the production of this film and what it pretends kind of for, um, for frankly, for all of us and for the current kind of political moment. So uh, with that kind of introduction out of the way, so perhaps Kevin, I could turn it over to you. Maybe um, you can start by just kind of laying out what this film is about and how you became involved in the project. Well, the, the, the film is based on uh, I say based on a bit tentatively because it's, 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 it's not necessarily the accurate word, but it's based on uh, Muhammadu Salahi's uh, memoir of his time in, in Guantanamo, uh, Guantanamo Diary. That was written, it's the only book I think up to this moment which was been written by an inmate, a detainee at Guantanamo while they were still there. There've been other, other books, obviously many books written by people who, who, who were there and, and uh, wrote something afterwards, but this was written that while he was there and it was written as letters to his lawyers and sort of went through the very complex process of clearance to eventually, 10 years after he wrote these letters, it was published in 2015 um, and it was published redacted. So the huge chunks of the book, if you get a hold of an original copy of it, um, there are pages and pages just blacked out. And so as, as an artifact, it's kind of fascinating to look at. It says so much about the subject of state control just as an object. So it was that book I read. I thought it was fascinating. I thought Muhammadu was a real writer. You know, he's got a writer's turn of phrase. But I couldn't see it as a movie. I just, I, I wasn't sure what, what, what the movie was. I could think of it. And I was, it was suggested by the producers, why don't you speak to Muhammadu? He's in Mauritania. He speaks great English. And I thought he's going to be a really embittered, very damaged and angry person because I probably would be if I'd spent 14 and a half years right. unjustly imprisoned in Guantanamo. And instead of that, I get a guy who greets me as, hey, bro, how you doing? Because <laughs> he's learned English from you know 19 year old guards in Guantanamo and he speaks a bit like a 19 year old American kid. And um, and he is a remarkable person. He's incredibly warm, incredibly intelligent. He speaks many languages, a very wide range of cultural references. In that first call, I remember 
he quoted Goethe to me in the original German. And he, he obviously thought I was brighter than I was. And he also sang a song by the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow, to me. So, you know, this, this is some, gives you some sense of his, his reference. And, but I was so fascinated by him and by his the ability to survive and the ability to actually have, have a, a human warmth and a forgiveness about him. Mm. I remember at the end of that first call, I was so angry at some of the things he told me. I said to him, are you suing the American government? Are you, are you being compensated? Are they giving And he laughed and he said, no, why would, I don't want to be sucked into this anymore. It's the past. I don't want hatred to take, take over. I'm moving on with my life. I don't want to have anything to do with lawyers and not to insult lawyers, but anything yeah. more to do with lawyers. Um, so that, yeah, that's what I, I so the idea, very long-winded answer, but I wanted, to, I wanted to tell the story of one remarkable individual rather than a sort of a political or a legal film. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, what, that struck, strikes me as true that certainly this is a story about Mr. Salahi himself. To me, what's also powerful, having kind of litigated some of these questions before, is that it's a quite detailed account of the physical place itself of Guantanamo. That is, I, you know, I don't recall there being other films, uh, sort of feature-length films, um, put aside there, there have been many documentaries about Guantanamo, but actual feature-length sort of fictional accounts of the institution itself. And so can you talk to us a little bit about kind of how you thought about portraying the, the actual physical location of Guantanamo? Well, it's interesting that you say that because for Mohamedou, you know, first of all, I should say, he's got a very, very sophisticated view of movies. He knows what a movie is because he watched so many of them in Guantanamo because after he had supposedly confessed, he was given a, a DVD player and the guards would bring in movies and he would watch endless, endless movies. And he, he, he knew that, you know, we're telling his life story in two hours. You know, how do you do that? It's a compression, it's a simplification all these things. And he's very, he was very, you know, as I said, cool with all of that. But the one thing that was very important to him and therefore became very important to me was I want Guantanamo to feel like it really did. And I want the way the guards behaved towards me, the interrogators, and finally the people who mistreated him. I want to see all of that to be as accurate as possible because America has spent so many millions of dollars preventing people from really knowing what happened in there, mm. not allowing people you know, films, um, uh, uh, photographs, whatever, of that space and of that place. And obviously there's no record, no visual record of, of what went on there, uh, particularly in that time. So I felt that it, I was sort of duty bound by that. And we were very careful with the, with the cells that he's in, that they were exactly the right size. And he would measure them out using his body and tell us it was my length plus another head. And then it was this wide because I could pray only like this with one leg over here, another leg here. And so we, 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 we tried to be as accurate as possible, which with his memory was, you know, relatively easy. I remember one thing in particular that he said that was an incredible detail. He said to me, uh, there was a screen, a lot of the time he was in a cell which was separated by a screen from where the guards were. So it's like a little tiny cell and you've got a, a, a kind of a, a, a metal screen with holes in it. Um, separated from where two guards are. So all the time, day and night, there are two guards there looking at you. You can't do anything, no privacy at all. And uh, I said to him, what kind of metal screen was it? And he said, uh, it had 4,229 holes in it. 
because he counted them all because he had nothing else to do. And it, and it is those sorts of things like, okay, well, I have to get, I have to now get a piece of metal that has exactly the right number of holes. So we were very, we were tried to be very, 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 very careful with all of that, with a sense of place, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating about that is that, you know, it's those details that in some ways were hidden even from the lawyers who represented these men, right? That is that the the legal teams of which there have been dozens that have represented the now over 700 people that have been detained in Guantanamo really had no access to a lot of the information and details about certainly about the lives of these men and the reasons why they were picked up, but also about the conditions under which they were confined. And so for me, part of what's interesting also about the film is that you capture the sort of the difficulties of the physical space, but also the process of learning about them from the perspective of these two lawyers who kind of the film travels with as they strive to understand what's going on and are basically funneled into a process that is incredibly um, uh, sort of, I hate to use the term, but Kafkaesque, nothing like any any kind of legal proceeding that they would have ever been used to, uh, with the exception of Ms. Jodie Foster's character, uh, Ms. Hollander, who's- Well, even she, we talk to, if we, I mean, it's a shame we don't have Nancy Hollander here because she could talk to this, um, uh, you know, uh, in greater detail, obviously, than I can, but, um, she, I should also say, worked a lot with the ACLU dur- d- uh, during this case. But she said to me that she originally didn't want to take on a Guantanamo case because it wasn't the law. And, and she felt that it was, it was, it was somehow betraying uh, uh, the principles of American law by even taking on the case because this wasn't law as any lawyer would recognize it. And as you say, it is Kafkaesque. And Mohamedou... Mohamedou's story is one of, of uh, surrealism, actually, absurdity. Um, mm. You know, there are, we see in the movie signs that were up everywhere in the, in the, in, in, in the prison, which say, uh, you know, $10,000 fine if you harm an iguana, because iguanas were covered by um, American uh, uh, law. They were protected species. And so you, the, the fact that, this, that, 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 that the soldiers down there are not sort of laughing every time they get with this, with the irony of this, that, you know, the iguanas are protected, but the prisoners are not protected by American law. And so there are so many absurdities like that. And I think you could see, you can see in Mohamedou's story, a kind of a warped view of American popular culture as well. You know, he, he fell in love with American popular culture, not just with movies, but with music and whatever. And, and at the end of my movie, you'll see him singing a, a great Bob Dylan song, actually. Um, but he, he um, uh, uh, but at the same time, it's, it is in a very distorted and, and warped way. So, you know, when he was being mistreated at his worst, the guards wore masks. And in the movie, you'll see that the masks are kind of fairy tale kind of creatures, I suppose. But in reality, those masks were Star Wars characters. They wore the masks of Yoda, of C-3PO, of Luke Skywalker. There's a moment in the book where Mohamedou talks, and this is again, you know, it's this absurdity, this realism. He, 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 he writes that he's lying in his cell waiting for his interrogators to come in and he can hear them outside arguing and they're arguing about who gets to be Luke Skywalker today. And, yeah. I, I, and he, you know, he sees the humor in that, but there's also something so, so messed up about it. Yeah. So deeply bizarre. I mean, the, the whole, there is a, 
even to this day, a level of absurdity about the legal process that these men are uh, the 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 remaining men who are there in Guantanamo are facing. I mean, just to give you a a, a, a legal technical kind of example of what, why this is the case, even the question of whether the commissions, the court system that has been developed to handle these men, even the question of whether they have jurisdiction over the crimes that a few of these men that are still there can be charged with, that is an unsettled question. That it, and they, the courts have kicked that question off till the very end. They've said, look, go forth, try these guys, and we'll deal with the jurisdictional questions later. And that's exactly the opposite of how anybody would think about any legal system. That is, does, can the court even sit and consider the crime with which you, Mr. McDonald, have been charged? They've, the answer to that is we don't know. So we, it could be the case that these that the legal process can proceed all, for years and years and years and get to a resolution. And then at the end, somebody says, well, wait a minute, this whole thing legally didn't count. So just to give you a kind of an example of the it's the legal absurdity that these men have found themselves under. And I think to me that part of what's interesting about the film is um, is it kind of reveals some of that absurdity because the lengths to which the government went to prevent these lawyers, Mr. Slahi's lawyers, from getting information about his case. Indeed, even the prosecutor from getting information about the, the facts underlying Mr. Slahi's sort of detention um, is extraordinary. And everyone who would see that would think that this is a travesty of justice. And yeah, curious kind of what, what you, so to me, to my mind, this is in part a legal drama too. And oh, so yeah, I'm it curious. Is, kind it, of, is, it is absolutely. And it, and it, and it, it, it felt to me, first of all, that an entire movie set in Guantanamo would be more than most people could bear. But also because you can't understand what Guantanamo is, I think, without understanding the legal perspective of it. And obviously, Mohamedou grasped hold when, he, when Nancy Hollander and Terry Duncan showed up, his two lawyers showed up there. He grasped hold of them as, as you know, his little window, his potential for, for, for freedom, and at least to have somebody to, to, to listen to and somebody sympathetic to listen to his case. And um, uh, you need to, I think, without that, without seeing what the prosecution and the defense are doing, I think you, you would feel um, really lost in what this process is. But also, there's a bigger part of it, which is this is a movie about and it's the least sexy sounding theme you can think of, but it's about the rule of law, just plain and simple. And what that, what that means and trying to dramatize that obviously is quite a, is a hard, is a hard thing to do. Um, but I think that's, you know, everybody in this film actually um, uh, is a victim of Guantanamo in a way, the prosecution lawyer in a way, right. Nancy but obviously most, most obviously Mohamedou himself. Right. Well, so um, what, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about one of the, to me, perhaps the most extraordinary parts of this film, which is how it treats the subject of torture. Right. So as everybody knows, many, uh, uh, many of the men detained, in fact, most have been were subjected to some form of torture by the U.S. government, whether at Guantanamo itself or in previous camps and facilities that um, pave the way for their eventual detention there. Um, and this film sort of dramatizes uh, um, torture. And we talked a little bit about it when you, when you mentioned Mr. Slahi's desires um, in terms of how the movie depicts uh, torture. So what I'd like to do, actually, if you don't mind, Kevin, is I want to show you and the audience a, um, 
um, an excerpt from the diary that um, uh, um, Mr. Slahi wrote. Can you see that? <clears throat> and here, um, this is this is in fact some of what um, uh, th this is page two thirteen, two fourteen of his diary, and you see the redactions here. And I want to sort of turn your attention specifically to this section. And I want to read it out to you. Um, here at the bottom, um, Mr. Slahi says, I was in a worse situation than a slave. At least the slave is not shackled in chains and has some limited freedom and doesn't have to listen every day to some interrogator's bullshit. I always compare myself with a slave. There are a lot of uh, common things. Slaves were not taken forcibly. Slaves were taken forcibly from Africa and so was I. Slaves were sold a couple of times on their way to their final destination and so was I. Slaves suddenly were assigned to somebody they didn't choose and so was I. And I found that quite fascinating and it got me thinking going back to the torture scenes of, of how torture has been depicted in films, actually. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself of, uh, of the um, English director, Steve McQueen, and his two films, Hunger and 12 Years a Slave, both of which do an incredibly, I think, powerful job of visualizing detention and torture and giving us really an unflinching look at kind of the realities there. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, kind of your process, what you thought about when thinking about how to actually represent uh, torture on screen. Well, this obviously, obviously the thing that I spent more time thinking about than anything else when making this film and discussing with Mohamedou, with Nancy Hollander, with my cinematographer, with my designer, we were, we were constantly discussing it. And on one level, I want this to be a movie which a wide audience see. It's constructed in a way and has movie stars in such a way that it, it, it presents itself as a mainstream film. And obviously, there's no point in speaking just to the converted, just to people who already know about this. You want to this to be a movie which reaches a general audience and changes people's minds. Um, but if you have really extreme torture in something, it, it, it's, it's difficult for people. Not surprisingly, it's difficult for me. Um, <clears throat> so one, that was the first question. How much can we show... Um, and then the second thing is, how do, we, how do we show it? And I was always looking at the other examples of torture in movies about this period. I'm thinking particularly of, there was a, there was a movie Zero Dark Thirty and another movie called The Report, um, but there've been many other examples in television as well. And the torture is always something that's seen from the point of view of the American, usually a CIA agent or whatever it is. And you usually don't know who the person is who's being tortured. They're a kind of nameless person of, you know, Arabic origin who, you know, probably did something terrible, we're led to believe. And in the case of Zero Dark Thirty, we're, we're led to believe that this, tor this torture actually led to the evidence being extracted, which led to the, the, the capturing of Osama bin Laden, which has obviously been a very controversial a very controversial aspect of that movie, which, by the way, I should say I admire a lot about that movie, but I think that particular aspect of it um, is, 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 you know, I don't particularly approve of. But, um, so my decision was to try and make us experience the torture in a subjective fashion. So to go inside Mohamedou's head, rather than to be on the outside, looking at it from the point of view of the torturers, we see a little, you know, he's kicked a few times, he's beaten a few times, but it's, it's not very much, not very much more than you'd see it, you know, in a, 
in, in, in pretty much any Marvel movie. But what is disturbing is then when you go into his head and you start to see how his, his consciousness is breaking down, how he's disorientated, how, how it is affecting him to be told, you know, we brought your mother to Guantanamo and she's going to be raped by the other detainees. Those sorts of things. So everything that you see in the movie actually happened to Mohamedou in right. different instances. It's not obviously everything that happened to him. And a lot of the worst torture, I think, was very un, very, very hard to, to dramatize because it's, it's torture, which is about you're going to stand in that position for six hours. It's very, it's very hard to do, to do that. Or you're going to be in this freezing cold room for 24 hours. Right. And just so uh, uh, I think what we, what we tried to do was to um, be truthful to what happened to him and so that anyone who looks at it and goes, you know, that didn't happen. You can look at the documentation, you can see, yeah, that, those things did happen. Um, but more than anything else, I want the audience to, by that stage in the movie, to be with Muhammadu emotionally, to be empathizing with him so that this is happening to them in a way. This is something that they're, ex they're experiencing, to happening to somebody who they've grown to be fond of, and therefore they, they feel it themselves. And that to me ultimately is what this kind of movie is about. It's about putting you in the shoes of somebody who you would never normally think you have anything in common with. Right. Um, and I think that the, the humanizing aspect of cinema, I call it the empathy machine. You know, is the, is the is its most powerful powerful aspect? I think. Well, certainly right. It seems to me though that it's a little bit more than that. That it's it's not merely about empathy for Mr. Slahi and for the men who've been kind of thrown in this cage, but it's also in some ways a kind of a political project. It has to be. That is to say that part of what, um, you, you know, where- the Political uh, is personal, but personal is political, obviously. Well, you certainly can, right. You can't escape from that. And it's a political statement to, to get an audience into the position where they feel for somebody who they've been told for so many years now, the, a Muslim man in Guantanamo, He's a bad guy, and we know we know how that goes. Right, right, and the, and and to um, and to explain in some ways um, to me how there could be a system developed around these men composed of what appear to be otherwise kind of rational, in in some ways sympathetic men, you know, people that, um, uh, you know, the, the judges who were there and the, the military officers who were shackling Mr. Slahi to the prosecutors, to the folks in government, you know, composed of what we would otherwise think of as decent men, but a part of what this extraordinary legal and sort of uh, uh, physical machine of brutality that had been kind of set up by the U.S. government in the aftermath, and to me, that that is the in some ways the political statement. That is to say, how do we get? How do these you know men in uniform get to a place where they're doing what they did to Mr. Slahi and did it without any kind of, um, in some ways, without ever having apologized to him for what they've done to this day? No, they That's, still haven't apologized to him at all. But I think you're I think you're right, and I think that. One of the interesting critiques that's been made about the movie, which I did not expect, but it plays to what you're saying, is that there are no bad guys. This is, where's the bad, where's the bad person, the villain who we can boo? Well, as we all know, life isn't really like that. And 
you know, there is a there is a conservative Republican Christian man who is the prosecuting lawyer played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who maybe in a certain kind of movie, he would be the bad guy. But actually what fascinated me was that here's a guy who had personal skin in the game. His one of his best friends had died in 9-11. He was a co-pilot in, in a plane that flew into the Twin Tower, uh, one of the Twin Towers. And he was, you know, he had as much desire for vengeance and bloodlust as, as anybody in the aftermath of 9-11. And yet he slowly begins to realize that the truth is being kept from him. Actually, what are the conditions under which these so-called confessions have been made? What are the conditions under which the prisoners have been kept? And he stands up and says, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. I'm not going to proceed with this case. And to do that is obviously incredibly courageous, I think. And I don't want to sort of, I don't want to make this a movie where it's like, you know, Republicans bad, Democrats good you know, Bush administration, <laughs> you know, it's not as simple as that. And I think you're right. It's the system. And it's the question is, how do people who are otherwise people of integrity and decency, how do they get into this situation where they're prosecuting a policy which is so uh, repulsive? Um, sure, there are some people who actually do the torturing who might have sadistic tendencies and enjoy it. But for the most part, that's not the case. And one of the things that, you know, one of the one of the most striking moments in the book is when Muhammadu does talk to the the woman who who's just a, a guard who is persuaded to kind of strip off and sexually assault him. I suppose you would say, and he talks to her and says, "Why would you do this to yourself?" Mm -hmm. What sort of background do you come from? That what sort of situation? What do they say to you to think that for you to think that this is right to do this? And what he gets to is that it's about fear. It's about these guards were all told to fear, to fear him. You know, I remember. I don't even remember the stories that circulated at the time when the prisoners were flown over in the in those big C seventeen planes. And there were stories about they have to be chained and shackled and hooded and everything because otherwise they're going to bite through the cables that, that control the plane in the back and gnaw them up, or they're going to they're going to leap at the guards and take their faces off. They were portrayed as as monsters in a way to make people feel frightened and to justify what was what was going on. Um, but of course, it's all it's 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 nonsense. They're human beings, and I think what Muhammadu did that. I don't want to say it's unique. I, mean, I don't know the stories of all the prisoners, or whatever. But I think one of the things that he did that was probably rare was that he had that empathy and he did reach out and try to communicate with his guards and he made friends with his guards. And there's one guy in particular who's depicted in the film a little bit called Steve Wood, who has, has um, uh, 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 he's, he's now the godfather to Muhammadu's son. He went to visit Muhammadu in Mauritania. They're like best buddies. And that came out of being in, in Guantanamo. So it says a lot about who Muhammadu is, but it also says a lot about these guards aren't evil people. They're not bad people. They're just people being put in a position. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think to me that 
It's interesting that the question of who the bad guy is here. I mean, it seems clear from the perspective of us, the kind of the lawyers and the activists and all these other folks who've been litigating these cases, kind of who the bad guy, the bad guys were. But I think it requires a certain level of nuance to be able to really articulate what went wrong, what was the failing here. And indeed, as you say, this was not just the Republican or Democratic issue. I mean, even uh, you know President Obama, when he came into office, you know, he signed the executive order, first day I'm going to close Guantanamo, and he wasn't able to get it done. And not just because he faced resistance, but because he himself didn't have, it seems to us, the, the sort of courage to do it. That is to say, lots of people during his presidency had been cleared for release and his administration had refused to, to release them. Often people who are cleared for release um, back to their home country of Yemen, and they feared, the administration feared that these guys would go you know, return to the battlefield, as it were. Um, and so they themselves didn't want to, weren't totally committed to the idea well, of closing. It becomes, about, it becomes about political will and how much political capital you've got to expend on something. And I, if I remember correctly at the time, when, you know, Obama's signed the executive order, we're going to close the place. And then there was, the, the, you know, how do we go about it? Well, we have to split the prisoners up around the world. Everyone has to take a few. And America needs to take some. But no American state would take them. Right. And, so, and so even Democratic governors and senators would say, no, we're not, we're, not, we're not having them. So he was put in a very difficult position, and I think he probably could have forced it through, but at what cost politically? These yeah, things, are, these things are complicated. I, I mean, you know, I'm no expert on it. Right, right, certainly. I mean, it's certainly right that you have to take a political chance here, but it strikes me that, that, that um, to what extent are we – did we or have we leveraged um, our own sort of commitments, principles, and ideals in the service of political expediency? And to me, that's the real trouble here. That is that the the there are people in this episode that is still going on today that have demonstrated real courage, and there are people who have not. And to me, one of the things that's interesting about the film is you can see, you know, a people like Mr. Slahi himself who have de who have demonstrated courage in this episode, courage to, to sort of persist and exist in these conditions and to tell this story and allow you to tell his story. And then there's certainly lots and lots of other people who have hidden behind, it seems to me, the sort of um, these political questions and kind of have washed their hands of their own responsibility for this for this episode. Well, That's a little bit of kind of how- nobody, It's fair to say that nobody within the US government, and it's the last card in my film, uh, nobody in the US government has ever apologized right. for what happened. And that in itself, you know, that's something that needs to, that, 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 that will be the beginning of the, the beginning of the end when somebody does apologize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, just a reminder to folks um, uh, to use the Q&A function on the Zoom if you all have any questions for, for Kevin or for me. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, we'd like to get to as many questions as, um, as possible here. But um, let me perhaps, um, uh, you know, there's one that um, uh, about, we talked a little bit about how you came across Muhammadu's um, uh, story. Um, so how involved was he then in the, it sounds like he was quite involved in the actual production of the film. Um, can you talk us through a little bit of the, of his role um, once you decided to take on the project, his role in actually putting it together? Well, he was um, crucial as, as a kind of resource for, you know, the reality of Guantanamo. We could, you could call him 10 times a day and he didn't mind. He wanted to talk about it. 
I, you know, I would call them and say, you know, what size were the chains? You know, I've, I've tried these, this size and, and they're, not quite, they're not making the clinking sound that they should be. And he said, no. They need to be, and we'd have these endless discussions about those sort of details. But, um, but then there was also, you know, the script went through many, many phases and he read the script several times. He would make, make comments on, you know, uh, uh, matters of fact, matters of character, matter, matters of, um, you know, I really feel like it's important that there's a line where somebody says this, or, you know, I'd like, I'd like to have my father, you know, my memories of being with my father out in the desert and the camels, and he's singing this song. Mm. And so we put in this little moment where he's singing this song. And, the and so there were, the, the, it was, you know, he was, he was very, he was very engaged with it. Um, but at the same time, as I said, he's 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 super sophisticated in his understanding that you know, first of all, he's not a filmmaker. So you know, in the end, if we had a, a disagreement, but say he said, look, you're the filmmaker. You do you you, <laughs> you tell me that's going to work better. Do it. Um, uh, but also, he was you know he was incredibly generous in his um, in his his the freedom that he gave us. Right. To tell the story in this particular way, there is so, the story is so much bigger than what we have told. There's so much more to it. it any movie is a simple is a gross simplification. And if anyone you know, if you see the movie and you're interested, go and read his book. Make sure you get the non-redacted version, which has got a beautiful introduction, by the way, which is which is a knockout piece of writing. The introduction to the book. I think one of the things is you know, Muhammadu is a great writer, but he wrote this book not exactly in the best circumstances. And he was never able to edit it. He was never right. able to go back. And so there are repetitions, there are things about, so I think as a work of literature, it's not the book that he would have written. It's full of lovely observations and moments of beautiful writing. But I think when you read the introduction to the new edition, there's like 30 pages long, you see, oh, this man has got the soul of a writer actually. Right. Right, right. So um, one of the questions that have uh, come in is a question about casting. You know, we haven't talked about that, but can, can you tell us a little bit about the casting and how true to life it was and what sort of the questions you were asking when trying to figure out who, who could best represent these, um, these individuals? Yeah. Well, so first of all, to play Muhammadu, that's obviously the, the, the crucial decision that the whole movie stands or falls on that. And, you know, fortunately, I was friends with um, the one man in the world who I think really could have done this and who did it, Tahar Rahim. Uh, who's a who's a well-known French uh, actor of Algerian descent, and um, he and I did a totally different movie, a Roman epic, not really an epic, a small epic, um, about ten years ago with Channing Tatum in it. And at that time, Tahar did not speak really any English, and all his lines were in ancient Gaelic, and he learned them. He learned them um, phonetically. Impressive. Impressive. <laughs> well, he's 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 good with languages, as you can see. Anyway, so so we knew each other. We'd remain friends. And I, I phoned him up after I spoke to Mohamedou on the first time and I said, I've got, this, I've got this project, I want you to do it. And his initial response was, I've spent 10 years avoiding doing stereotypical Muslim terrorist roles. And I said, look, just read the script. And right. he, I, because we were friends, he sort of said, okay, I'll read the script. He phoned me back the next day, so he, I cried all the way through this, it's beautiful. It's not what I expected. I'm in. So he was the first person to be involved. And so that was great because he was able to, you know, work with me on the dialogue to make it feel like it came out of his mouth, <clears throat> out of the mouth of someone for whom English is a second language. 
Um, he he also, by the way, you know, he doesn't speak classical Arabic. Um, right. I could tell as, as an Arabic speaker, I can actually tell his Arabic is, is not. Uh, it's not quite right. Right. He's, so he's a, he speaks Algerian, which is a very different. I mean, it's Arabic, but, you know, real different dialect. Right. And um, so he had to learn those lines. He had to do those lines. He had to learn to say there's, there's a, another kind of Arabic dialect, Hassani, which is the, the language they speak in southern Morocco and in, and in Mauritania. He had to learn that. And of course, he speaks French. There's French in there. He speaks a bit of German, so he was able to do that. So you know, there's a lot of skills, a lot of sort of you know learning stuff, even even for him. Um, but then the the rest of the cast, you know, Jodie Foster was my first choice because yeah, Jodie is Jodie has got this armored exterior, you know, or in the character she plays, certainly this sort of brittle armored, sort of thing, and yet you sense a broken person somewhere in there. And I think that was how I envisaged who Nancy is, because Nancy has this, this fairly subtle arc, which is, again, a simplification of, of, of Nancy Hollander's own journey. But if she did go from somebody who saw him as a case, a fascinating case, um, at, to seeing him as a friend. And they're now like mother and son. I mean, it's a beautiful seeing them together. They both came to South Africa together. They a really lovely relationship because they spent so much time together in, right. the, in that cell in Guantanamo. And um, uh, so Jodie's, it was this perfect. I send it to her thinking Jodie Foster does not really act anymore. She's not going to do this. And amazingly, she got in touch with me three days later. She said, I was so intrigued by the title, The Mauritanian. I thought, what the hell is a Mauritanian? And... <laughs> and and so that was what intrigued her. That's why we never changed the title, actually. A lot of people would say, you've got to change the title. Nobody knows what Mauritania is. Um, but Jody was like, no, that's the best thing. It's so intriguing. What is that? Um, so, so uh, uh, yeah, she, she has been fantastic uh, as, for so many reasons, but particularly because she's a very, she's totally lacking in vanity. And she did not want this to be a film about her or her character. She knew she is there to support the bigger story of, of the, the legal struggle and Mohamedou's personal struggle. So uh, she would, you know, always taking out her own line, saying, I don't need this scene with my backstory or my whatever, you know, really focusing it down. So she was, she was really, you know, a prime creative force in the, in the film. Um, Shailene Woodley, who's just a lovely, lovely person, very politically engaged. She um, and Jody make a, a, a lovely kind of double act. She, Shailene is so warm and heartfelt. And right. kind of, you know, tough. And, um, and so that's a, this a lovely, a lovely combo. And then Benedict Cumberbatch, he was originally, you know, one of the producers on the film. And it was, he was actually the last one to commit to doing it because originally we thought we have to have an American to do this. But the part became sort of better and better, and he and and he read it, and he was like, "Why would I let someone else do it?" So he he um, he jumped on board. So yeah, I mean, it's a it's a dream cast. They're they're a wonderful cast, and they were all they were all so committed to it. Right, right. There's a question here from uh, from Benicia who asks, "Do you think there will be a possibility of compensation for those unlawfully imprisoned in Guantanamo?" Um, and, and that question, I, I could perhaps answer that question. And the answer to that is almost definitively not, certainly not compensation from the, from the Americans. And that there's a host of reasons for that, but it is exceedingly difficult to get monetary compensation for acts conducted 
uh, in violation of the Constitution abroad. Um, and we've seen this principle actually recently was reaffirmed by the United States Supreme Court in a case involving a cross-border shooting of a, um, of a Mex young Mexican by Customs and Border Protection officers in Texas who killed this man and the fam uh, boy. Uh, in fact, there are new numerous instances of this, but the case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that uh, compensation was not allowed under the constitution. And that the only way that compensation could be allowed is if Congress specifically creates a law that uh, remunerates these individuals who are subject to, to uh, violence, death, or detention. And Congress, as we know, is not likely to do it. So the, po the possibility of um, this kind of compensation, it seems to us, is, is quite minimal as a, as a legal matter. And I think our, the question for, for all of us as a collective is whether we think that's just or fair. And I think the answer to that is almost undoubtedly um, that it is not. Um, I see Kevin still um, uh, uh, has has hopped off for connection issues. Um, uh, you know, the uh, and, and the last question here, um, Nalia's question, you know, I'm interested in Kevin's take when he rejoins us, but the question of what do you think this film, the question is, what change do you think this film will have on the discourse around the closure of Guantanamo? You know, and it's an, it's, um, we can hope there's been um, that it will sort of um, really light a fire under the Biden administration who has committed, at least nominally, to close, closing Guantanamo. And indeed, there have been actual calls from, um, from uh, former detainees at Guantanamo to close the camp um, since Mr. Biden um, was inaugurated. Um, it remains to be seen whether he will demonstrate or exemplify the kind of courage that's required in order to close Guantanamo. You know, part of what um, what they have, there are some legal snafus that that prevent that from happening. There, there are legal questions that make closure of Guantanamo currently slightly difficult, but but they can definitely do it, and they need and. It remains to be seen whether they will um, they will find the courage and the political will to be able to um, to to make that happen. Kevin, sorry, you, you got disconnected again. You were talking about um, about funding and how this was kind of this project was one which everybody was paid at scale. Um, oh, and you're connecting at the moment. Um, so uh, want to make sure you're back on, uh, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin, you were talking about um, about the kind of low the funding issues and how the the, the the film was kind of a low budget film where everybody was paid at scale, and then you kind of yeah. So um, the movie was made um, finance from the BBC in the UK a little bit, and then the majority did come from two US sources, uh, two two US financiers. One is Topic, based in New York which uh, specializes in doing films about uh, social issues, social justice issues. Uh, they were involved in Spotlight, that great film about journalism a few years ago. And then another company called 30 West out of, out of LA, who were a purely commercial um, business and who I think saw that, you know, the, 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 this, this, this could have some potent commercial potential when, when nobody else did believe that it would. Um. 
Yeah, and we're certainly delighted that they were able to take a chance on the film. Uh, <laughs> perhaps we might, um, I might ask one additional question um, and then actually close it off. Um, you know, and that's a question for you, um, Kevin. I started to ask, uh, answer this question, but, um, but I'm interested in your take on it, which is, you know, what impact do you think, do you hope this movie will have in terms of the campaign to shut down Guantanamo? Well, I think as filmmakers, you know, we, we're, we're maybe a, a little naive if we think that, our movies are going to really have a real world impact. I, I hope that in the, in the, in the, in, in, in its widest sense, I hope that it changes people's minds about prisoners like Guantanamo and makes them think differently about the institution of Guantanamo. Um, I would love it to be part of the conversation, which is already ongoing in the Biden administration about closing Guantanamo, and maybe maybe its timing is quite good in that sense. In that, I know that on last Friday, uh, Biden announced that there's going to be a a, a, a review, isn't there, into, into Guantanamo, uh, with a view to closing it. So, you know, if we can change a few minds, if we can, um, uh, uh, you know, be part of that bigger conversation, I would I I, I would love that. But um, for me, it's about humanizing people who have not really been humanized enough. And, and um, if you could have Mohamedou here now, um, you know, I would love that because you would, you would be, um, you, he's a man you would connect to almost instantly um, and, and, and warm to. Right. Well, listen, you know, I think um, uh, to me, the, th this is in some ways an important project because it's about remembrance. And what I'd like to do is maybe issue at least some closing words from my perspective, I'll put on my activist hat and then thank <laughs> you all for joining. And that, you know, in, in kind of watching the film, it's hard not to, to, um, um, to, to think about the, the fact that there are 40 men currently in detention in Guantanamo and most have been held in this labyrinth for about 19 years. And 28 of those men have never been charged and or they've been cleared for release, in fact. Um, you know, of those 40, seven have been charged with crimes within the kind of court system that's been developed. Um, but th those seven have had a whole bunch of legal, there are a whole lot of unanswered legal questions about their um, uh, uh, about their charges. And if you know anything about the system, you would know that it's a total Byzantine mess of jurisdictional uncertainty, prosecutorial misconduct, legal ambivalence. You know, the 9-11 proceedings themselves, the ones that involve the most high profile of the detainees, those uh, proceedings are now on their sixth judge. Um, why? Because there have been t numerous blatant conflicts of interest in which judges have applied to the government to get jobs as judges using writing samples of the orders they wrote as judges in the proceedings themselves, right? This has happened on numerous occasions, just to give you a sense of kind of how difficult and kind of complex the, the question is. And it seems to me that the, the, the government is actually no closer to starting a trial for any of the current men than they are when they first opened the camp and invited what will eventually be 779 prisoners into the camp. So then the question I think for us, all of us, is to ask, well, what's the point? What's the point of Guantanamo? You know, what's the purpose of this nightmare? And to me, the question, I think the answer to that question from somebody who's kind of done this work before, the point is about memory and forgetting, 
right? To me, memory is a terrain of struggle, right? Empire requires the construction of forgetting to be able to disavow the consequences of its own power. And it assumes people will forget stories like Mr. Slahi's. Um, it assumes that people will forget the consequences of the country's own misdeeds and malfeasance and incompetence. But I think that assumption is incorrect, right? I, I don't think people forget, you know, that Mr. Slahi certainly won't forget, you know, the people involved in this project won't forget that they were involved in it. The soldiers themselves who are shackling him, they won't forget. The millions of people involved in all of the wars and adventures overseas, they won't forget. And the reason is because war and this kind of trauma doesn't end. Right. There may not be boots on the ground. You know, my least favorite synecdoche in the English language, there won't there are no more boots on the ground. But the consequences of that trauma, I think, stay with people. And so I think what we're doing now is remembering. And I think this is kind of what this movie to me is about. And it's um, what I'd like to, I think, say in, in closing is to everyone that we ought not to forget that part of what I think is useful about this film as a kind of a as a as a text, as a political document, is that it's part of the process of remembering what happened here and bringing to light a story that most people would want to forget. And I think we owe it not just to Mr. Slahi and the victims of Guantanamo and all these wars, but we owe it to each other not to forget. And and I and to me, you know, I really want to thank, um, you know, part, the, you know, the famous quote, uh, "Who controls the past controls the future." I think we are trying to control our own past so that we can create a future in which this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And for that, I want to actually thank Mr. Slahi for telling a story. And to thank Kevin um, and everyone involved in the film for beautifully retelling um, his story. Um, and so I encourage all of you to view it and you all, the attendees anyway, will get uh, exclusive links to, to be able to watch this film. And I encourage you all to do it and to actually remember and to be a part of the process of remembering this particularly kind of tragic ongoing episode. Um, and so um, thank you so much, Kevin, for this conversation. I really enjoyed kind of listening um, to you about the film and thank you to all the other participants. I'm going to kick back out to um to maria now to close us up thank, thank thank you Mohammed. that was really a fascinating and, and a, a really great summation i think uh, um i 100 agree with what you're saying this episode was brought to you as part of second homes creative collisions podcast subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what other events we have coming up see you next time